You're listening to Public Health Matters, a new podcast brought to you by the Institute of Public Health. My name is Marisa Fagan, and I'll be your host for this podcast, highlighting key public health issues across Ireland and Northern Ireland. Over the coming weeks, we'll be speaking to experts about the big public health issues of the day and what lessons we can learn from past challenges. So stay tuned to stay informed about public health matters and what matters now. Today, I'm joined by Professor Siobhan O'Neill, Professor of Mental Health Sciences at Ulster University. A leading expert on mental health and suicide prevention, Siobhan was recently appointed as Northern Ireland's first mental health champion. And today she joins us to talk about the high rate of mental health issues in Northern Ireland and some of the factors at play. Welcome to the podcast, Siobhan. We're, We're delighted to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Siobhan, you were appointed as the mental health champion for Northern Ireland in September last year. This is a brand new role. You might tell me a little bit about that and what it involves. Yeah, there are three elements to the role, really. Um, I advise government departments. Funding for this role has come from all of the government departments a little bit from, from each of their budgets. And the idea is that I work with all of those departments to further mental health and well-being. So um, prior to this, I was already working with Department of Health on suicide prevention and mental health, and also Department of Education on their strategies and policy and even infrastructure on suicide prevention. So it's a recognition that mental health is the business of all the government departments. I do that advisory role, but I also listen to people with lived experience um, and use the learning from that experience to influence policy and I do a lot of engagement work with the groups um, and professional groups of people who work in mental health services and then finally I would do a lot of media work and public engagement work where I would speak about what's happening in terms of mental health services and also send out key messages around mental health and suicide prevention for example in the pandemic that became very important. What evidence is there to support the need for a mental health champion? I mean, if we look at the statistics that are available, was it the fact that Northern Ireland has the highest prevalence rates for mental health issues in the UK and Ireland? Well, the the rates of of mental health problems in Northern Ireland are are higher and traditionally that was associated with the the conflict. Unfortunately, other regions actually have caught up with Northern Ireland's high rates. So that that gap is narrowing. For example, the gap between Northern Ireland and England has narrowed. So it's not that that our situation is getting any better. Um, I think there is a recognition that government have a key role to play in promoting mental health and well-being, that it's not just one department. And in Northern Ireland, the, the mandatory five party coalition model means that a a mental health minister would be from one party and that would be detrimental I guess in some ways because there is always that competition between the different parties as they as they work together. Um, I see my role as based um, on my my academic expertise as well which actually is really important. I have a solid knowledge of the situation regarding mental health in Northern Ireland and also the academic evidence, the scientific evidence around what needs to be done to turn things around, which is not just mental health services, it's about early intervention and prevention too. So I think all of these things came together at a time when we were recognising that need for a fundamental change to the system and all aspects of the system, right from schools, communities, um, early years through mental health services. 
So um, I, I was here, I was already doing a lot of this work and I was asked to do it on an interim basis and then I applied for the job and, and thankfully got it. Just to pick up on something there, you mentioned, you know, the fact that, you know, Northern Ireland has, there's some unique circumstances or factors in Northern Ireland, given that it's a post-conflict society. I mean, is the legacy of the Troubles, is, is it a big part of the is it a big factor or a big influence in the high rates of mental health issues that we see here? Or is the, is the picture much more complex than that? Well, as with all these things, it's a very, very complex picture. The biggest predictor of mental health problems on a worldwide basis is childhood adversities. The things that happen to us when we're children really influence our uh, risk of mental health problems through the lifespan. Um, and the difficulty is with, Nor with Northern Ireland's situation, a lot of our children have experienced adversities that are related in part to our history of violence. So the legacy of the Troubles also includes things like poverty, inequality, we have really high rates of child poverty here, much, much higher than you would experience in the Republic of Ireland. Now, one in four children live in poverty. Um, and there is that legacy of trauma. It's affected the, the generation who were parents um, and grandparents now, who and, and they do pass that, that on in, in ways to the, the, their children, to their offspring, through childhood adversities. And there's even some evidence around the biological transmission of trauma. I first got involved in this work in 2005 when I was one of the workers on the World Mental Health Survey in Northern Ireland. And we found then that um, our rates of trauma exposure were really high in that generation. Um, and we had the highest rates of post-traumatic stress disorder in all of those studies that were conducted in many countries around the world. So no doubt that that has had an impact. But right now it's about uh, childhood adversity. It's about deprivation. It's about poverty and inequality, as well as the pressures of modern life that we see in all societies. What lessons can we learn from other jurisdictions who may have faced similar challenges? Um, I mean, you mentioned the fact that, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder has, we have seen higher rates of that in Northern Ireland. Is there anything that other jurisdictions have done that we should maybe take on board or consider rolling out? This was an important question that we did ask. Other regions who had lower rates of PTSD than, than Northern Ireland had and um, arguably more protracted conflicts like Lebanon, South Africa. And what we saw was that their societies were actually going in and assessing people for trauma-related mental health difficulties. Um, so this is not about treating everybody who's been exposed to a trauma, but watching and, and then looking for those cases. And when we find them intervening at an earlier stage with trauma-focused therapies that really work. And when you do that, you actually do reduce the prevalence of trauma-related difficulties. You reduce the length of time that people suffer for. And of course, you reduce the impact on future generations. Um, but what we've now got is a really good victim service, um, and we are delivering those treatments. And I think there's other regions internationally that are looking to Northern Ireland as an example of, of how to do trauma and on how to respond after a violent conflict. Just to go back to something you said earlier, I mean, it's interesting that the gap is narrowing from what you're saying that. So are we seeing higher rates of mental health issues or just a general increase in mental health issues across, say, all jurisdictions in the UK? 
Well, certainly um, in England would be, the, the, there was a big gap. We were 25% higher than England. And what we've seen is that as the, the, the number of, the, the proportions of the population who are living in poverty and the inequalities and, and the, the gap between the rich and the poor, as that widens, you do get more, um, more people with mental health difficulties. Um, and the pandemic then layered on top of that has created, has amplified all of those problems and created additional difficulties too. So um, there, there are lots of social factors that influence mental health and social justice issues are really relevant to mental health as well. Indeed, in the Republic of Ireland, we saw with the austerity measures that were introduced after the recession, there was a surge of suicides and that documented um, in a peer-reviewed paper. So th this stuff does make a difference. So mental health is in many ways political and particularly in terms of inequalities and poverty are really, really relevant to this picture. The, the fact that um, the rate of suicide increased post-austerity or the recession, the more recent recession in the Republic of Ireland, are there any figures available for Northern Ireland to see was there an impact of austerity there in terms of mental health or suicide rates? Our, our rates were, were higher and they, they fell a bit recently, but we're, we're really levelling off right now. We had a difficulty with the way that our suicides were being categorised from 2015 to 2021. And that has now been clarified. And there was a lot of deaths in there that were actually accidental deaths that needed to be recoded. Um, so we're now seeing that our, our rates have, have levelled off. But what you see in terms of suicide prevention is where there's countries who implement measures, protective measures, financial measures to support people um, whenever they're going through financial crisis or redundancy, um, then you do, you don't, you don't, don't get the same impact on suicide rates. So social policies really make a difference. And, and that's, that's something that I've learned in this role that social policies can be so, so important. And it's important to have somebody that, that understands mental health that's working um, across social policies so that we can get it right. On that, on that issue of, say, the latest um, statistics on uh, the number of suicides in Northern Ireland, I mean, they're, they're, they were published in May and they suggested it was uh, 219 suicides in 2020, slight uh, increase on the previous year, but down in 2018 figures. I mean, what do those figures tell us generally? Um, you know, Northern Ireland has still got a high rate compared to England and Wales, but it's it's you know it's it's lower than Scotland. Um, but is there any lessons or is there any trends within those figures if we drill down into kind of the regional um, the regional trends or or look at the deprivation levels? What do those figures tell us about the mental health issues in Northern Ireland? Well, those figures are really interesting. What they tell us is that there's a huge deprivation gradient and suicide rates are twice as high in the most deprived areas compared with the least deprived areas. That's a really, really important feature. Um, we know that suicide is not just about mental health. It's about a person's circumstances and how they, um, how they perceive their lives and whether their lives are worth living. So social situations are really important. Situational crises are really relevant to suicide. 
prevention as well as mental health services. And interestingly, the majority of those people would not have been in contact with mental health services. So only a third of our suicides um, are among people who are mental health service users. So there's still a lot of unmet need out there, people not reaching out for support. Um, maybe the, their, their mental health is not deteriorated to the point where they have a mental illness, but they still nonetheless feel suicidal. So what we've been doing um, in response to that is implementing a towards zero suicide uh, strategy in mental health services to reduce the rates right down to implement suicide specific treatments to look at those issues around whether life is worth living and the underlying factors that influence suicidal thoughts um, rather than simply treating the, the mental illness. So we're doing that in mental health services. We've also got a suicide prevention strategy, which is about really working across society, increasing awareness of some of the factors that are related to suicide, um, how to spot the signs that someone might be suicidal and how to respond effectively. And then we've implemented various different crisis intervention services across Northern Ireland, and we're working to strengthen those. So the situation is far from perfect. And I still hear reports of people who come forward in severe distress and crisis who are not able to get the support that they need. So we're working really hard to improve things so that people do get that that help whenever they're in a crisis situation and I think that's fundamental to to turning this around to starting to change things the, those figures for 2020 I suppose that's the first year that you know we can see did the COVID-19 pandemic have an influence I mean is it is it too early to say what impact the pandemic has had on on mental health issues in general we do have a lot of data, data on mental health in the pandemic, and we know that the, the, the proportion of a population who experienced distress and stress certainly rose. Now, there, there was a, um, also more people who would have tipped into that threshold of meeting the criteria for a mental illness, let's say, um, as well. And people with existing mental health problems, we know their mental health in many cases got worse. Um, and there are groups who have experienced significant trauma. So it's such a mixed picture. Um, in fact, there's a little group there, about 10% of the population, who did really well during the pandemic and they feel that their mental health has actually improved. And that includes children who were taken out of school at that time or, or were um, staying home from school. And so, so it's a very, very mixed picture. Um, and we know the demand for mental health services has certainly increased and more people are, are reporting suicidal thoughts and suicidal behaviours. Now, the, the suicide figures themselves, tell they, they haven't really changed and they tell us that this didn't translate into an increase in people in the numbers of people who were taking their lives. Um, although it, might, it mightn't feel like that in certain communities where there's high levels of distress and clusters of suicides even, you know. Um, but I think... I think we, we need, it's very early, it's very, very early in terms of the, the long term, particularly the economic implications of the pandemic. Um, and we're now seeing the cost of living crisis, um, you know, exacerbated by all of the things that have happened in Northern Ireland related to the EU exit. And even the war in Ukraine has influenced how people perceive themselves and their hope for the future. So um, we're still in, we're still seeing the outworkings of that. And um, I'm very, very careful to emphasize that message of we need those social protections in place for, for people who are facing financial crisis because that is associated with suicidal behaviour 
and death by suicide. And there's good evidence that that's the case. So we need to make sure that we protect our population, even though our, our rates aren't showing any change at the minute. And when you drill down into those statistics as well, in terms of the, the rate of suicide or the number of suicides um, in Northern Ireland, there is some really interesting, I suppose, regional or geographic differences. Belfast Trust Area has the highest rate and it's quite stark when you look at the map and you see the rate is, is quite high there. Does that again come back to partly deprivation or those factors, those social factors and also maybe to some extent, that's where a lot of the conflict occurred as well. So there's a very broad mix of, of factors there. Yeah, I mean, these area level variations, um, they, they are removed when you adjust for deprivation. So the areas where we have high rates of suicide and even prescribing of medication for mental health problems, they're the same areas that have been affected by the conflict and they're the same areas where you have um, the highest area, the highest levels of deprivation. So all of these things co-occur and it's very difficult to disentangle those. Um, and from, from a policy perspective, we need investment there. We need investment in mental health services in those communities, but we also need investment in terms of jobs and culture and arts and all of those things that make life worth living and help people feel that they are valued contributors to society. So again, the conversation often goes down the road of more mental health services, but I'm very strongly in favour and the evidence is clear that early intervention, prevention and the things um, that promote well-being, culture, arts, sports, physical activity, all of those things are important as well. And we need to make sure that we are reducing the inequalities and creating um, safe spaces, safe environments for for communities so that so that young people particularly have that hope for the future and have that self-esteem and feel that they're valued. And we have a new 10-year mental health strategy for Northern Ireland and services are undergoing a process of major reform. Do you feel that we are on the right track now um, with this new strategy? Um, and we've just recently had the the um, Northern Ireland Assembly elections. We're still, wait, I suppose, waiting for an executive to be formed. The, the mental health strategy is so, so important. It's a huge development. We've been calling for this for years because the system needed to be changed. Simply injecting money into parts of a service was not and never would be enough because we need to make sure that we have the workforce in place. We need to make sure that there are those connections between different parts of the system, between GPs and mental health services and schools and all of those things. And we needed to invest in early intervention and prevention because simply treating people when they get ill is just not a good way to be spending your money and you know so so all of those things are in that mental health strategy and it's a 10-year strategy it was um, developed in a, in a really difficult time of a pandemic with lots of co-design um, and co-production with service users and professional groups so this 
is a really, really hugely important development for Northern Ireland. And the actions in that strategy really are what, what I believe we need to do to turn things around here. Now, it's important to note that this is a Department of Health strategy. It's not a programme for government. And I would always say that the programme for government actually is what's necessary there so that we create the culture, that we create the community, that we, you know, that we really invest in everything else like jobs and education. So those things are really important. But notwithstanding that, there's much that we can do um, in terms of early intervention and in terms of the remit of the Department of Health there. So those actions are in there. And um, what, what we're looking at now is the, the implementation plan for year one of the strategy. So year zero has happened. There's lots of enabling actions like that workforce plan. Those are all happening. The design of a single service, a single regional service rather than a fragmented service across trusts. That's all been designed designed. So what, what we're seeing now is, is year one and we have an implementation plan for that. However, there is a question mark over the budget for the mental health strategy. We are doing okay at the minute and we're able to implement those actions, but we are going to run short of funds pretty quickly. And that's where we need that, that budget and the, the money, the additional money, the 34% additional to mental health services. And we need the um, an executive or a minister or a department or a way of getting that money into mental health services so that we can keep going. There is a sense of urgency, I suppose, around that. We, we wouldn't want to see the good progress that's been made, you know, stalled if, if finance issues or budgets could um, hold things up a little bit. Yeah, that, that's the worry. Although what we're talking about here is a 34% rise in our budget for mental health. Now, when you look at what our budget was, it was always that bit lower. We're 20% below the Republic of Ireland and we're standing at about 33% lower than the, the budget for mental health services in England. So what we're really asking for is that uplift to, to level us off, you know, to make us equivalent to the, the, the money that's spent in other regions. But we're going to do so much with that. We know exactly how we're going to spend that and we're going to spend it in a way that um, we we know based on the evidence will make a big change to things. So it's it's not a huge ask in my view. And all of the political parties that we approached before the election, we wrote to them all and they've all committed to this. So this, this is not a huge thing. And I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to find that money and find a way of getting that money into, into the strategy over the next few months. Briefly, to come back to the, the legacy of the Troubles um, post-conflict society, I was struck by a statistic where more people had died by suicide in Northern Ireland since the Good Friday Agreement than during the entire Troubles period. You know, the figure was somewhere more than 5,000 men and women have died by suicide since 1998. And we know that around 3,600 people were killed during the conflict. I mean, do, do those figures tell us anything about the, you know, about mental health of Northern Ireland's population or other factors at play um, or is, is that oversimplifying I suppose um, the complexities that are there I think again it's um, it, it's a it's about the the legacy of the troubles and the effect on a generation who haven't been exposed to the troubles but who who feel that they have um, that, that they have no hope for the future 
that they lack hope. It's it's for me. It's about those th- th- those inequalities that exist, partly as a result of the, the the troubles. And we know the areas are exactly the same. The areas with high suicide rates are the same areas that have been most affected by the violence of the troubles. But it's also very stark in terms of the numbers who've died during the troubles and the fact that there's barely a family in Northern Ireland that hasn't been affected by the troubles that is not carrying that enormous weight of trauma and grief and even fear. Um, And that is passed on to the the next generation, that fear, that worry about about the conflict and and whether you know that it might be resurrected again and you know whether the peace that we have is true and lasting peace and what kind of future we're building for Northern Ireland and our society continues to be very very divided you know we see that all the time even in 2022 we see those divisions that are there um so there, there are many people who still love their lives and fear um and carry all that grief and trauma um, and even if they weren't affected by it directly, you know, it's in the families, it's something that that dominated life here. And we can't just pretend that it didn't happen. So we're still dealing with that. We still have a lot of legacy issues that have yet to be resolved. There's a lot of hurt that's unresolved that's out there. Um, and undoubtedly that that's going to have an impact. But it's the impact on hope. When we think about suicide, we think of uh, the generation who have lost hope for the future. You know, hope is fundamental to suicide prevention. So we we need to give that hope back to our young people. And there's evidence that even the pandemic has resulted in a deterioration of hope in that young age group, you know, um, in terms of their job prospects and their life opportunities here. And we have far too many people who go away from Northern Ireland and never come back, you know, more than other places too. So all of those are problems that we're still grappling with. And just on that issue of hope, I mean, you're in a new role and I'm sure you, you're very optimistic though about um, the progress that can be made. I mean, is there anything we should we you would like to see in particular happen this year um, or next year? I think the action to the action plan for early intervention and prevention is something that we can do now. It's a low enough cost activity, but it's about working out what we need to do across society to make those changes. So whilst we're, you know, we don't have a program for government, we can do a plan for early intervention and prevention. So that that's something that can be progressed. And I think that is going to happen. We are in the middle of reforming crisis services. We have a plan for that as well. And that's really exciting. So we're introducing suicide specific treatments um, and rapid treatments for people who are presenting in crisis, you know, and connecting up the police and ambulance, the first responders with the community organisations who are doing great work and, and really doing a lot of the heavy lifting here um, and connecting them better with mental health services too. So all, all of those things are, that's a priority. The crisis services really are a priority as well as the early intervention and prevention. We have had developments which give me huge cause for optimism so we've got the perinatal mental health service for the first time specialist teams actually supporting women and their wee babies women who have mental health problems that makes a huge difference actually that's one of the the things that will make a big difference so we need that expanded but we need more provision of of, I think psychological therapies and counselling and other therapies through the therapy hubs too so look it's very difficult to, to think about one area but we need to do the early intervention and prevention stuff but we need to work then at the other 
end of it for the crisis. So we're saving lives, we're saving more lives um, and keep keep just working away and rolling out the other actions because every single one of them really are necessary. Well, yeah, I suppose that's very true. It's a 10 year plan. So there's a lot of work to do over the next 10 years. Um, just finally, before we wrap up, is there anything that we might see from yourself um, reports or research or, you know, is there anything that you're working on right now that you intend to share or publish, um, you know, that would be of interest to anyone who's working in this area? Oh, there's there's so many things going on behind the scenes. I'm working actually on my re- response to the review of education and I'm publishing a couple of articles on the impact of our education system on young people's mental health. So that's what I'm doing right now. I mean, literally (laughs) on the other side, on the other screen here, it's sitting there. Um, I also did some uh, uh, survey on the uh, stigma and attitudes to suicide in the Northern Ireland population. So we're going to be publishing some papers from that, which is really, really important as well, so that we can track then over time um, how how we're doing in terms of anti uh, anti stigma campaigns and 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 how how the population attitudes are are changing and shifting. And interestingly, there's been a huge shift in terms of our attitudes to suicide. So that's evidence there that uh, the work that we're doing there to raise awareness of the preventability of suicide that, that that's actually having making a difference. You know, and these things would give you hope and give you optimism to um, and I'm involved in a European project called Our Generation, where we're running programs in border areas. We're addressing peace building and um, and all of the, the divisions in society. We're addressing that through resilience programs, bringing people together, but really working on those coping, um, self-awareness, emotional literacy, all of those things. And what we're seeing is that um, the data is starting to come through there and it's just so, so positive. So we'll be writing papers around that as well um, that will shape then our future work in terms of peace building. So yeah, there's there's a lot of work ongoing. And, and I'm also doing some digital mental health work too that. Um, um, again, developing digital mental health and chatbot um, applications. So lo- lots to look forward to and lots of work going on behind the scenes and constantly looking and tracking the mental health of the population and thinking where we could do more um, and what our departments should be doing in terms of supporting the, the population's mental health and well-being too. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but it's been a pleasure, Siobhan. And thanks very much for your time and insights. I do hope we can have you back another time to discuss other aspects of mental health. So that's it for this episode of Public Health Matters. Thank you for tuning in and please do send us your questions or thoughts. You can email us at communications at publichealth.ie. And if you want to keep up to date with the Institute, you can sign up to our newsletter on www.publichealth.ie or follow us on Twitter. Until the next time, thank you for listening and take care.